I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Dr. Ibu Patel, founder of Interfaith Youth Corps, an organization that promotes service and religious pluralism among youth on college campuses. Ibu is a member of President Obama's Advisory Council of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. He is the author of Acts of Faith, the story of an American Muslim, the struggle for the soul of a generation, and Sacred Ground, Pluralism, Prejudice, and the Promise of America. Welcome. Good to be with you, Jessica. Thank you. Could you uh, describe the mission of Interfaith Youth Corps? Our goal is to make interfaith cooperation a social norm. In the same way that multiculturalism has become a social norm and volunteerism has become a social norm and human rights have become a social norm, we want the idea that people from different religious backgrounds come together to build understanding and cooperation to be just part of the water of American life. What's an example of some of the projects that you focus on? So one of my favorite stories around this is something that happened at my alma mater, the University of Illinois, over the past six or seven years. Uh, A a group of students from U of I interned with us uh, over the summer of, I think it was 2004, and kind of learned our interfaith service methodology. And they went back to Illinois, uh, and they started a group called Interfaith in Action. And every couple of weeks, the kind of core leadership of that group would gather for a shared values discussion. How different religions speak to say mercy or compassion or hospitality. And every year they would run a big interfaith service day. That was their big annual event. And they'd get, you know, 150 or so people. The terrible earthquake in Haiti happens a couple years ago. And these these students think to themselves, we have to do something big. And they, they plan this huge event called A Million Meals for Haiti. And they wind up mobilizing 5,000 people to package over a million meals for Haiti. And they have this big discussion board, uh, write your faith or moral inspiration to serve others. And uh, I love that example because it shows how if you do interfaith cooperation or really anything, slow and consistent. If you build your leadership group, if you run your annual event, if you start to establish relationships of trust, when a big moment comes, whether it's a tragedy or an opportunity, you can really take off. Now, you specifically focus on youth. Uh, and in your book, Acts of Faith, you talk about how the faces of religious fanaticism are, are young and the faces of interfaith cooperation are old. Why, why do you think that's the case? Well, I hate to say this, but religious extremist outfits are really entrepreneurial organizations, and they understand extremely clearly that they have a target segment that they're effectively marketing to, and that's young people, and they use strategies which are really appealing to young people. When we were kind of coming on the scene, given that our the segment that we want to mobilize and inspire young people, we had to make sure that we were doing it in ways which were genuinely inspiring and mobilizing to to people in their teens and 20s. You talk about the religious extremist groups being entrepreneurial and and brilliant youth organizers. Osama bin Laden wasn't such a bad youth organizer. Osama bin Laden, uh, is that's what he was. He was a youth organizer. Why has there been a scarcity of that in more cooperative interfaith youth movements? So, you know, one of the inspiring things for me is that over the course of American history, there hasn't been a scarcity. I think we just don't tell those stories well enough. So think about, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. in Montgomery in 1955, leading the bus boycott, was 26 years old. 
And of course, he was drawing on the inspiration of Jesus Christ. He was also drawing on the lessons of Mahatma Gandhi, an Indian Hindu leader. Mm -hmm. And Gandhi, when he started his movement against the racist pass laws in South Africa, was 24 years old. I want to talk about your own religious journey, because in a way, your personal story deeply informed your professional life and the founding of IYC, or Interfaith Youth Corps. You are Muslim, and your specific sect of Muslim is Ismaili. What does it mean to be an Ismaili Muslim? Right. So, you know, Ismailis are a small community within the the Shia interpretation of Islam. We have a leader who we follow, who we consider kind of the uh, the rightful interpreter of the Quran. And that person is the Aga Khan. The Aga Khan has built this really remarkable network called the Aga Khan Development Network, uh, he, identifying the core values of Islam, mercy, compassion, the dignity of human beings, and building a set of institutions in a dozen plus countries uh, in the Muslim world, you know, where some really bad folks are operating. The Aga Khan Development Network institutions are educating girls and helping small business owners get their businesses off the ground and redoing Muslim monuments and works of art that are kind of falling apart. So there's this ethos of, of service within Ismaili Islam, and there's also this emphasis on service even in your own family. Your grandmother, for example, uh, is very service-oriented. Can you discuss that? Yeah. So, you know, a big part of my of my faith journey was, was falling in love with the service heroes of other traditions and all these people across different religions. And, and, and at that time in my life, I was probably 20, 21 years old. I never really gave much thought to the tradition of my birth. I just thought it was boring, right? And then the summer before I head off to graduate school, I spend in India and I spend it uh, at, the, you know, at the apartment of my grandmother in the southern part of Bombay. And uh, I wake up one day and there is this woman in my grandmother's apartment um, wearing kind of a torn white nightgown, several sizes too large for her. So I asked my grandmother, you know, who who's this woman? And my grandmother says, well, I don't know her real name. The leader of the local prayer hall brought her here. Uh, we'll call her Anissa. Now, don't answer the door for the next few days because her father and her uncle, who are abusing her, might be looking for her. And I said to my grandmother, you know, you don't you think you're getting a little bit too old to take in refugee women? And my grandmother gave me this arched eyebrows look, and she padded over to to the cabinet, and she brought out this shoebox full of Polaroid pictures. And she opened the shoebox, and here are all these Polaroids of women that my grandmother had taken into her home over 50 years. I said, you know, why, why did you do this? And she said, well, I'm a Muslim. This, mm-hmm. is, this is what Muslims do. That was the time in my life when I started to say, I want to live up to this tradition. It's, it's interesting. You know, your, your family had a tradition of service, and your great-grandfather, your, your grandmother's father, started the Ismaili Volunteer Corps, Corps in, yeah. in India as well. Y- your, your mother also had a, a, a deep understanding of pluralism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you spent a lot of time at the YMCA uh, in leadership activities. And in your book, you mention uh, that you came, come home singing the song, Pass It On. And your father was working 
worried uh, because you are getting influenced by other religions, uh, you know, in- including Christianity. And your mother's response was, you know, I-, I hope they teach the kids Jewish and Hindu songs, too. That's the kind of Muslims we want our kids to be. And you mentioned that your mother guessed the arc of your life. Yeah. My mother guessed the arc, and I would say she pushed me, pushed me along. And also, you know, they, and I am grateful to her for that. Your parents are from India. Your father was an actor and filmmaker in India prior to moving to the United States and working for Leo Barnett, the advertising company. And your mother uh, was a a CPA, a certified public uh, accountant. What was your own experience as an immigrant child growing up in the Chicago area? By the time I was in high school, I found this kind of pack of kids who were not like the others in the same way that I was. Um, uh, we were nerdy kids. We we not only did well in school, but we liked school. Um, we were from all different religious and ethnic backgrounds. There, there included a Cuban Jew, a South Indian Hindu, a Nigerian Evangelical, a Lutheran, a Mormon, and a Catholic. And uh, what's interesting looking back on that right now is we would talk about literally everything under the sun, but we wouldn't talk about religion. And one of the the most formative experience in my life is actually an experience of failure, which is the time, the, the several months where I watched my Jewish friend experience an ugly strain of anti-Semitism in my high school. And a group of thugs were kind of going after him. And I remember watching this and doing nothing. A couple years later, when we were in college, my friend brings this up with me and says, you know, the hardest part of that was you doing nothing. Mm. Why did you do nothing? And it was a deeply humiliating experience. I shared it with my dad, and my dad was was really, really sad Mm. about it, uh, really disappointed. And he's like, you know, you failed your friend, and you failed your faith. Mm. You failed Islam. If I have taught you anything about religion, it's that Islam... The tradition of the prophets calls you to stand up for those who are being hurt, especially when they're from a different tradition. That happens when I'm like 18 or 19 years old. And, and a big part of that moment is me, is me thinking to myself, wow, maybe religion is relevant to me. Though your, your relationship to Islam was, was a complicated one, uh, and you kind of had a moment of clarity in 1998 when you went to visit the Dalai Lama. When you are on the road to creating this interfaith uh, movement, uh, and you, through Buddhist meditation, found Islam again. Can you describe that moment? Yeah, so, you know, as, as I look back, and of course, you know, one's history always feels a lot more coherent, uh, um, and you can connect the dots. They feel, they feel linear, uh, uh, and it feels very scattered and confusing when you're going through it. And the moment with my grandmother uh, in her apartment in Bombay was, was, wow, religion. I'm watching this woman be inspired to do dangerous things to help other people in the name of her faith. And then, you know, in that same trip, I had this chance to have an audience with the Dalai Lama. And um, as you say, you know, I'm kind of practicing Buddhist meditation at the time, and I'm excited to tell the Dalai Lama about my new Buddhist meditation practice. Uh, and we we get inside the Dalai Lama's receiving room, and he has this conversation with my friend Kevin about Judaism. And then he turns to me and he says, so you're a Muslim? And I was like... I was, I was a little confused and taken aback because I was just about to tell him about being trying to trying to be a Buddhist. And then he says again, so you're a Muslim. 
and, uh, and and I don't I don't say anything. And and he describes this time in Tibetan history where one of his predecessor Dalai Lamas has this dialogue with an emerging Muslim community in in the city of Lhasa, and the focus of their dialogue is on the shared value between Buddhism and Islam of mercy. And the Dalai Lama says, you know, as we're on our way out, you be a good Muslim, right? And I'm thinking, I'm like, Kevin, how does he know that I'm Muslim? And Kevin's like, well, maybe Dalai Lamas just know things, <laughs> you know. But that's it was a that that those series of moments in my life were hugely important in terms of me looking back at the tradition of Islam, recognizing that there were dimensions of it that were relevant to to my life and that were inspiring, and thinking to myself, not only do I want to be a part of this, I want to I want to live up to it. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Dr. Ibu Patel, founder of Interfaith Youth Corps. We'll hear more from Ibu coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Dr. Ibu Patel, founder of Interfaith Youth Corps, an organization that promotes service and religious pluralism among youth on college campuses. He is the author of Acts of Faith, the story of an American Muslim, the struggle for the soul of a generation, and Sacred Ground, Pluralism, Prejudice, and the Promise of America. Simultaneous with your own developing allegiance to Islam is your idea for building this interfaith youth corps, which promotes religious pluralism. So people really appreciating their own religion, but working together in the spirit of service. How did that idea first originate? So, uh, you know, when I was in college, uh, there were there were two big movements emerging at the time. One was the the diversity and multiculturalism movement. This is, you know, 1993. Uh, Cornell West has recently published Race Matters. The Rodney King beating had had just recently happened. Um, universities were starting ethnic studies and Afro-American studies departments. You know, the idea of racial and ethnic diversity was uh, was pervading the campus, right? And uh, the second movement that it was um, that was emerging at the time was the service learning movement. So Teach for America was a relatively new organization at that time. City Year was a new organization. President Clinton had just started the Corporation for National and Community Service. And uh, I remember I'd, I'd, I'd go home you know, a weekend every couple of months, and I would lecture my dad about multiculturalism and, and you know, people of color consciousness. And mostly my dad was you know, took this in good humor. And at one point he got a little frustrated and he was like, listen, the next time you want to lecture me on, on uh, you know, uh, the consciousness I'm supposed to have as a person of color, uh, uh, you just tell me how we're going to solve the most important diversity problem in the world. And it's about religious diversity. Watch the evening news. Open the morning newspaper. The dimension of diversity driving the world is religious diversity, and you never say a word about it. And neither did the college campus movements. Didn't it? It, it was almost non-existent in the diversity. I can probably count five times, uh, you know, on one hand, the number of times that I heard the word religion in the diversity conversation. Interfaith Youth Corps was incorporated in 2002 when you got your first grant from the Ford Foundation of $35,000, but the idea had been percolating since 1998. Um, when you, you, you had become a Rhodes Scholar and you were doing research on uh, interfaith movements. What were some of the early projects of Interfaith Youth Corps when it was really um, 
you know, not a formal organization right. yet? Uh, that's a great question, and 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 I got a big smile on my face because those those projects were so much fun. We um, we helped to run an interfaith Habitat for Humanity build in Hyderabad, India, with students from all over the world from different religious backgrounds in an area of Hyderabad that had experienced Hindu-Muslim tension. Just as I saw in college, how service brought together people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds. The projects that I started doing in graduate school all around the world, in India and in South Africa and in different countries in Europe, were about bringing young people from different religious backgrounds together around service. And kind of a simple idea occurs to me, which is what if we built a movement where service was the bridge between young people from different faiths? In 2002, the Ford Foundation gave you your first grant of $35,000. You, at the time, were not working full-time for Interfaith Youth Corps. You were teaching. Right. At what point did you say, okay, uh, this is going to be my my full-time work? Right. So, you know, uh, we got that $35,000 grant from the Ford Foundation in summer 2002, um, and then we went to a couple of other foundations, the Chicago Community Trust and the Woods Fund, and we basically said, listen, you know, the big boys in New York have invested in this, and we're based right here in Chicago, and most of our projects benefit Chicago. Won't you give us some funding as well? And they did. And as soon as that funding came online in early 2003, you know, I told my wife, will you hold my hand and can we take this leap together? Um, uh, and, and can I do this full time? You mentioned your wife, Shanaz. Right. She is Muslim. Mm-hmm. Before you you married her, met her, you had a history of dating women of other religions. Uh, your first girlfriend was a Mormon, mm-hmm. and you dated a Jewish woman and a Hindu. Um, so you know, as we we come as we're in a presidential cycle with a Mormon candidate. Uh, I find myself thinking a lot about what I learned from my Mormon girlfriend in high school and how much I learned to appreciate her tradition even though I had disagreements with it. And and this is part of what we call uh, the science of interfaith cooperation at, at Interfaith Youth Corps, which is that I view the Mormon community not through the the negative things that people are saying about Mitt Romney and and the church uh, by proxy. Um, I view the Mormon community through my friendship and my relationship with with my girlfriend in high school. And what we know from the social science data in in religious diversity is that if you if you have a positive, meaningful relationship with somebody from a different religion, your attitude towards that whole religious community, and in fact, other minority religious communities as well, improves. And it's one of the things that we train our our interfaith leaders on college campuses to do through something called the Better Together campaign is is we want them to be creating programs where people from different religious backgrounds can develop positive, meaningful relationships. We mentioned that 2002 was the was the founding, the official founding of the organization. This is after, obviously, September 11th. What role did September 11th play in the organization's development, if, if any? Well, you know, the, the idea occurs to me in 1998. And over the course of my time at Oxford, I you know go to different parts of the world and I start interfaith youth projects. Uh, and as I'm doing this, I'm thinking to myself, wow, 
if we had more money, we'd be able to do these projects better and we'd be able to do more of them. So I'd go see foundation program officers and other funder types and, you know, kind of important official types. And I'd tell them the importance of young people as interfaith leaders. And they looked like they wanted to go to sleep a lot. And after September 11th, nobody looked like they wanted to go to sleep anymore. Do you think Islam has more of an inclination towards extremism than other religions? No, uh, I I think that in the past 40 years, unfortunately, a set of extremist leaders who were able to build strong and entrepreneurial institutions happen to emerge in the world of Islam. But I, I think it has nothing to do with the tradition. I, I think it just has something to do with this this group of people having you know just happening to emerge. And literally, if you took eight or 10 people out of the 20th century, uh, um, Sayyid Qutub, Abdullah Azam, uh, Modudi, Osama bin Laden, Amin Zawari, if you took them out of the 20th century, you wouldn't have Muslim extremism. Hmm. It's, it's, this, you know, it's interesting that this is a show on entrepreneurs and, and institution builders and the fact that you need people to actually build things. If those people hadn't existed, those institutions wouldn't exist and the movement wouldn't exist. Some people say that since Islam is inherently a younger religion uh, compared to the other Ibrahimic religions like Judaism, Christianity, there there is inherently more strife. It's kind of the religion is going through its adolescence, whereas Christianity has already gone through theirs and Judaism as well. Does that resonate with you? No, no. I mean, maybe it's because I'm a sociologist, uh, but I just don't think I don't think things fall fall from the sky or rise from the ground. I think people build things. And that's why we are so intent on building a strong institution Mm -hmm. at Interfaith Youth Corps. If we don't build it, then it's not going to exist. In your book, Acts of Faith, uh, you talk about briefly the founding of Islam. And it was striking to me because the founding of Islam seems to um, be deeply rooted in religious pluralism. Uh, and you talk about how Muhammad, when he was giving his first you know, prophetic calls, uh, he, would, he would emphasize that uh, he wasn't creating a new religion, but that he was just trying to return people to uh, God's oriz- original message of monotheism and mercy. So it was almost as if he was building on Judaism and Christianity. It, it is that he was building on Judaism and Christianity. That's exactly right. And part of what I draw out in Acts of Faith and even more so in Sacred Ground is what we call this theology of interfaith cooperation. And I believe that this is deep in every tradition, that you can tell the story of Judaism, the story of Christianity, the story of the Baha'i faith, the story of, of Hinduism and Buddhism, and certainly the story of Islam as a religion that was highly relational, that sought to build bridges from the beginning. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Dr. Ibu Patel, founder of Interfaith Youth Corps, an organization that promotes service and religious pluralism among youth on college campuses. In addition to ultimately raising capital, um, you built a strong board of directors, uh, one of whom was a director at McKinsey. And in 2009, 2010, your organization kind of had this important pivot moment. 
Can you discuss that for a moment? Sure. So uh, I'm smiling because you you call it a pivot, and that's so gentle. It felt <laughs> like a punch in the face. So you know, the, the quick story of the organization is is once we get our first grant in 2002, and we start running projects, and we start running projects that that get media attention, and we start getting speaking uh, opportunities across the country, and then the White House and the State Department finds out about us, and we start going around the world and talking about interfaith cooperation. Is it feels like uh, we are uh, we're going from like celebration to celebration and success to success between 2002 and 2009, 2010. You know, we grow from a $35,000 grant to basically a $3 million budget. We're, we're one of the largest, if not the largest, interfaith organization in the country. When Barack Obama becomes president, he appoints me as uh, as one of his faith advisors, which kind of you know just signifies the role that we play in interfaith work. So when when my uh, my friend and and board member Tarek El Masri says, hey, you know, we ought to do uh, kind of a comprehensive assessment of Interfaith Youth Corps' impact, I'm like, sure, you know, tell us how great we are, <laughs> just like the just like the press does. Uh, uh, well, I you know I didn't really realize that that's that's not really how McKinsey Consulting engagements go. <laughs> so I'll never forget Tarek at a barbecue he's having at his house where he invites my wife and family and myself. You know, he he kind of let slip that he's getting the data back and it's unimpressive. Mm. And I, I you know, I think he's speaking Swahili. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, let me be really straight with you, Ibu. You go and speak a lot of places and people love it when they have an interfaith youth corps person there speaking. But when we ask them what they're doing a year or two later, the answer is not that much. And so your medium long-term impact is effectively nil. When he was telling you this, was there a little kernel of awareness that, hmm, you know, I, I that resonates? Well, when he was telling it to me, I wanted to throw him in the lake. It, it was an enormously difficult thing to hear. It was the work that you are doing and that you think you're good at is actually not that good. Hmm. And actually, Tarek told me, it's your fault, Ibu. It's your fault because you you like to talk about too many things when it comes to interfaith cooperation. You don't define it clearly. You don't articulate a proactive strategy and plan. You know, when somebody asks you a question about interfaith and addiction, you're happy to riff on that for five minutes. Or interfaith in the Brazilian rainforest, you're happy to riff on that for five minutes instead of saying, here's what we mean by interfaith cooperation, and here's our strategy for accomplishing this, and you can measure our progress. So concretely, what did that mean? Like, what what changes did you, did you make? So the assessment basically said we had to focus on a target sector and define our goals very clearly. And so it took us, you know, several months and for me weeks worth of sleepless nights to to say we're going to focus on college campuses which means that when US embassies call we're going to say sorry we can't send you a speaker and when hospitals call and say can you send us somebody to do a training with our nursing staff we we say no uh, and when a city calls we say no instead we we work with we work with a single target sector instead of running 12 programs with that sector we effectively run two programs with that sector. And here you were, an international organization at your founding, and you become now a domestic organization focused on college campuses. That's exactly right. So, and and I think about just how hard of a process this was. Look, when Queen Rania wanted to talk to somebody about interfaith cooperation, she called me. When Tony Blair wanted to talk to somebody about interfaith cooperation because he was starting a project, he called me. And of course, that 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 uh, you know that is music to my ego, uh, and it's something that 
the Interfaith Youth Corps took a lot of pride in. And we start projects with both Queen Runya and Tony Blair and the White House and the State Department and all sorts of outfits. And so what happens is by 2008, 2009, Interfaith Youth Corps is basically a dozen projects. And they're not particularly connected, except they all deal in some way with religious diversity, social action, and young people. While the impact you were making was not as large as you thought it was, according to this McKinsey study, I wonder, though, if starting off as this hyper-ambitious international organization was almost necessary for you to get the exposure that you got, even if you've now narrowed it down. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think that the first stage or two of the organization was very necessary. And if you look at the and if you read One Day All Children by Wendy Kopp, she tells a similar story of of Teach for America being wildly ambitious and starting all, all kinds of teacher support satellite organizations, et cetera. And we did the same thing. And yes, it did a lot for our profile. It helped us meet a lot of people, uh, which was very, very important. And it helped us get a lot of practice. You know, our people were out in Jordan and they were in South Africa and they were in the Middle East and they were, you know, in Europe running interfaith projects. And we got really, really good at it. But we weren't making a long term impact. So, you know, we took that veteran team and we said, okay, we now have to we now have to discipline ourselves to really make a long-term impact on a key sector. Your focus is college campuses, which can be divisive communities. How is Interfaith Youth Corps you know, dealing with that? Yeah. So I think that's a great question. And, and our the name of our campaign is Better Together. There's other people saying we're, we're better apart. There's people saying we're better divided. There's people saying one group is better dominating another group. We at Interfaith Youth Corps are training a critical mass of people who are saying, even if we disagree on hugely important things like abortion or gay marriage or Middle East policy, we know that when we partner on civic projects, we're better together. And we know that that's a huge part of what America is about. So we're going to find ways of having conversations that build bridges instead of barriers. How have you been able to manage this this change in the context of your ego and your own interest in really, you know, answering uh, Queen Rania and uh, Tony Blair when he calls? That's a really important and, and kind of an, uh, an intimate question, and I, I appreciate it. Um, uh, you know, so I'm I'm in my mid thirties now. I'm not twenty six anymore, and uh, I have a wonderful wife, and I have two kids, and. I want to be part of building things. And I want Interfaith Youth Corps to to have a spiritually bigger place on my gravestone than my name. I am not building Ibu Patel. Right. I am building Interfaith Youth Corps. That resonates. In your 20s, there is this youthful exuberance. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I, I'm going to use a, um, a totally out there it's parallel. Okay. But I, I heard an interview with the South Park guys. And they said, one of them said, you know, I I could never have written South Park. I could never have started it now. And the interviewer was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, there are things you can do in your 20s, mm-hmm. right? Energy that you have, the way you see the world, just like wild craziness mm-hmm. that you're able to just do things. And, 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 and I, I think that that's true, right? Mm-hmm. And the it is it is a beautiful thing that I was ready to make a change in my life at the same time that the organization was ready for a new stage. I think I used to view interfaith 
the Interfaith Youth Corps Interfaith work as like throwing a set of radical spangles into the world. Throw them as far as they can go and follow them. Follow them to Jordan. Follow them to Kenya. And now I view interfaith work as a craft. And my image for that is, you know, a, a musician in in his workshop alone with an acoustic guitar trying to get the timing just right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's good to be with you. Thank you for having me, Jessica. My guest has been Dr. Ibu Patel. Coming up, we'll meet Bridge Kathari, founder of Planet Read. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. From Scratch.